Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. And Craig, I was very interested in your Florida Phoenix online column this week, floridaphoenix.com, because it completely blew up a myth I had about Florida and offshore wind generation for electricity. Yeah, uh, it, it was it was I was stunned. I saw the story in The New York Times that said the secretary of the interior, Deb Howland, was was saying, oh, we're going to have windmills everywhere. And I thought, well, wait a minute, that's that includes Florida. You're going to put windmills off my favorite beach. So I started digging into it and I found out Florida actually stinks when it comes to wind power that that, you know, it's a good place for solar power because we get lots of sun. But we just don't get the kind of steady gusts of wind they need for wind power, both on land and over over the ocean too mm-hmm. so uh it was really interesting to kind of check into that and 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 do some uh, debunking of of uh yeah I, I had no idea and like you said secretary of the interior deb halland oh a few weeks ago now announced that you know the biden administration wants uh, essentially an unbroken string of uh, windmills offshore along the eastern seaboard of the united states there's there is an absurdly low number of offshore wind generation, wind, yeah. something like single digits yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the eastern United States. But one of their hopes is to see this huge, you know, 1,500, 2,000 mile unbroken uh, string of windmills. But like you mentioned in your article or found out in your article, they're pointless in Florida because we don't have the sort of wind that would no. generate the power necessary like for Nebraska the investment. Or- Kansas or whatever, or you know, it's Cape though, Cod that, or you know, New England, yeah. where offshore wind really makes a lot now, of sense. Now it's interesting though. There is a a project, uh, partly sponsored by Florida Atlantic University, to use the uh, Gulf Stream fascinating mm-hmm. to produce energy, an energy current through turning turbines in that. And that test has been successful, but it's a long way from being made into a yeah. practical generator of, of of power. Well, whether it's you know wind, solar, geothermal, uh, you know, the Gulf Stream, we've got to figure something out, oh, yeah. obviously. Uh, well, not obviously. There are plenty of people who are just happy to ride and die with fossil fuel. So I say, obviously, that's that's not the case. But, you know, from, from where you and I sit, uh, solutions need to be found. But one of the solutions- Before we're all swimming. Before yeah. the water's up to our eyebrows, well, yeah. But that solution will not include- offshore wind generation in Florida simply because we don't have the wind. And yeah. uh, thanks to Craig Pittman, floridaphoenix.com. You can read more about it now. We all understand why. So on to the next thing. And the next thing this week is the Jeffrey Epstein case, a case uh, I hazard to say everyone is at some level familiar with. Our guest is going to be Julie Brown, and she really broke this case open again with her book, Perversion of Justice, the Jeffrey Epstein story. Uh, color in the uh, details here a little bit while we get a hold of uh, Julie for folks to catch him up. Craig. Julie's a longtime reporter for the Miami Herald, and she had done some spectacular stories about Florida prison scandals. But then she took on the Jeffrey Epstein case. Epstein had already been brought up on charges, had apparently paid his debt to society uh, with a plea deal. But Julie started digging into it, finding out what did the victims have to say about that? And she managed to track down, I think, 60 of them and talk to them and found out that a lot of them were not consulted on the plea deal, had no idea it had gone down. And uh, it was just a riveting piece of journalism that she produced 
and it sort of broke open the whole case all over again and resulted in Epstein ultimately being charged all over again. Anywhere you find books, they will have perversion of justice, the Jeffrey Epstein story from Julie Brown, who joins us now. Julie, let me first start off by well, by telling you it's a it's a riveting book. But let me let me start off by asking you, what led you into journalism in the first place? What was there a particular event or particular interest? I was, you know, the oldest of three children to a single mom. I felt growing up that my mom suffered a lot of injustices as a single mom. I I remember one time coming home, for example, and all the furniture was gone from our house because oh. she hadn't p- been able to pay the electric bill. You know, I just remember it making me mad because my mom was working two jobs. You know, we were eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you know, for uh, breakfast, lunch and dinner, you know. And I don't know, I just always remembered how people who don't have means, who aren't uh, privileged and uh, how much they struggle and how they are often voiceless in our system. And I think that in part drove me to journalism. Wow. And you did some spectacular stories about Florida's prison system, but you then you got interested in the Epstein case. Tell, tell me a little bit about it. But your editor was, was not as interested. Well, you know, it happened, in all fairness, this was a story, as you know, uh, that was really covered, you know, all over the place, um, off and on over the years. So I think he correctly surmised, well, you know, what else? what have we missed here? You know, and that was my very point uh, of doing the story that I felt like, for example, that that the victims hadn't ever really been interviewed before. And Mm -hmm. that I felt that it deserved given the breadth of the crime and how horrendous it was uh, that it deserved another uh, examination. You tracking those victims down though was, was quite a, quite a difficult task. How did you get started with that? Well, and I, I sort of am one of those people that always feels like I can do what nobody else has been able to do. <laughs> I don't know why, but I just always feel like I know nobody else got this, but I know I'm going to get it. And <laughs> I, I thought, you know, I know that their names are probably redacted, but I also knew from doing this kind of work for a while that the more you delve into these documents and the digger, d- deeper that you dig, you often find places where they forget to redact a name <laughs> or a date of birth or, you know, or an address, yeah. name or so all I needed was pieces. And I just started the spreadsheet with like, I would have a, a, a girl's, you know, let's just say Melissa. And then I would have a date of birth and then I would have maybe something about where she lived. And so you would just put, it's like kind of putting together a puzzle. You would just put all this together in a spreadsheet. And then eventually, you know, you hope that the pieces kind of come together. I'm so glad you said that because every time I talk to young journalists, I tell them, make sure you learn how to do spreadsheets. (laughs) My spreadsheets aren't really all that, uh, you know, (laughs) advanced, let's put it that way. But, uh, but I, I had to figure out a way to keep track and I thought this would be a good way. And so I sort of forced myself to do it, but I, I'm definitely one of those people that I can't stand doing that kind of work either. (laughs) All of this you're doing is something of a side hustle because you've still got your regular reporter job. You are a single mom yourself. If uh, I'm understanding that correctly. And my greatest question to you is not where the motivation for pursuing this came from. You talked about your mom being a single mother. Obviously, these victims deserve someone speaking for them. I understand why you would want to do this. 
Where did the energy come from to actually <laughs> do the work to pursue this on the side with a regularly busy life? I think about the energy it takes me to write to my council person or attend a meeting out of regular business hours. And it's exhausting to fight for something like that. It may be as, as small as a, a city park. You were fighting and you eventually found 60 victims. Where does the energy come from? to pursue this so doggedly? Well, you let a lot of other things go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just now catching up on all the things they tell you to do when you get older, you know, all the appointment doctor's appointments and checkups that you have to have. (laughs) You you first of all, let yourself go and don't take as good care of yourself as you should. Um, My kids are always, you know, the top of my list. So your kids are first. Then of course your job is second. And, you know, there's a million other things I have, you know, an elderly mother who lives in Mexico and a whole drama with her living in Mexico. And, you know, you, you have all these other things going on in your life and a lot. And all I can say is you prioritize and you just try to put one foot in front of the other. And, um, you know, I, I'm very good at multitasking. <laughs> um, so I think that helps. Uh, but, you know, there were bills. Hey, I got my car repossessed in the middle of when I was doing oh, the prison series. Holy cow. And, and it wasn't because I really I probably could have paid it. But I just am not good at like, oh, that was due then. And three months went by and I didn't pay it. And I came home from an assignment in the middle of Florida doing these prisons and my car was gone. Oh my <laughs> you <God>. know, so. <laughs> You know, your life kind of, I don't know, you kind of make it an obsession in a way, you know. Yeah. Well, I don't think in a way. I mean, obviously, it, it is an obsession. And thank God it became one because you saved, uh, well, not saved lives, but you were able to share the stories and bring uh, Jeffrey Epstein to some measure, not of justice, but of responsibility for what he did. As you're digging into this, at what point do you realize you have something that's not merely an interesting newspaper story or a side note to this bigger story, but you know, it's the, it's the crime of the century, essentially, you're uncovering. We really realized that it was going to be a really good and important story after we finally interviewed the first victim, Michelle Licata, who lived in um, Tennessee outside of Nashville. We flew into Nashville. Emily Uh, Michelle is my videographer and photographer who I worked on some of the prison projects with. And she joined me on this project, thank God, because I think some of the most powerful uh, pieces of the work that we did was, of course, the visual aspect of it. And uh, we didn't know whether Michelle would even cooperate with us because her lawyer told her not to do the interview. Hmm. Uh, But she sort of was on the fence and we thought, let's do it, you know, and we did and we went there and that interview, every time I even talk about it right now, you hear my voice probably choke a little because that interview was just, uh, you know, it left us speechless. It was incredible um, what she went through and incredible what she shared with us. And, um, you know, she was reliving the worst part of her life, you know, and, she almost died. You know, she almost committed suicide. She was a drug addict. She she just almost lost her mind, really. And for her to describe that process, I think the interview was at least three hours, maybe four or mm. five. It felt like five. And to get all that on camera, that raw emotion, it can't it, it just cannot not affect you. 
Uh, and the yeah. hardest part is keeping it together while you're doing that interview. And we did. And then when we got in the car to leave to go back to the airport, Emily and I were just completely silent, which is something we were never silent. We're always like, oh, my God, this part or how do you want to do that? Mm-hmm. Part? We're completely quiet. And, um, you know, as I said in my book, um, she called us and I thought she was going to say, oh, I changed my mind. I don't yeah. want you to use it. She said that it was so liberating for her. She felt so um, free and just like a, a burden had, you know, a rock had been lifted off her shoulders. And I just knew, Emily and I knew, you know, if that was the only interview we ever got, we knew we had a story. Why do you think the prosecutors were so willing to bend over backwards to cater to uh, Epstein and his defense lawyers? I think it was um, ego and it was they recognized that these were powerful people uh, that Epstein was both working with these lawyers that he hired, the people that he knew, uh, the impact that these people could have on their careers. And in all honesty, uh, except for the two, ironically, the two female prosecutors, both the the federal prosecutor and the state prosecutor, who were both uh, women, uh, they both suffered uh, career-wise. But the men all did great. They Mm -hmm. went on to these high power jobs and in big law firms. And, you know, one of them went to the Justice Department and became like the third in command of the Justice Department. I mean, they all did really well, all these people, the people that, you know, sort of pushed back a little bit, particularly the female federal prosecutor, um, Marie Villafana, she stayed stuck in her job. And she ultimately was the one that really paid the price. And Hmm. This wasn't the kind of corruption that, you know, you're two guys are sitting at a table and somebody sticks a suitcase full of money under the table. This is a whole le- new level, as you know, Craig, from covering Florida. This is there's a whole different kind of corruption here yeah. um, that has to do with, you know, you taking care of each other and the boys, you know, watching mm-hmm. out for the other boys. It's like something I really haven't seen before. I've been doing this for a very long time. And I don't know if it's an advent of the times, you know, that time has elapsed and things have become more sophisticated or whether it's a Florida thing, quite frankly. That's an interesting question. And that's where I wanted to go next to piggyback kind of on what Craig said. And in in researching this, I knew very little about the case prior to talking to you still obviously know very little bit about it. But Epstein was actually brought up on charges related to pedophilia and trafficking in women and that sort of thing. And it was knocked down to largely insignificant misdemeanors, did a little time in uh, county jail in a couple of months there in South Florida. So my question is, and you talk about, is it a Florida thing? Is there anything particular to Florida that allowed this to happen? Or if he were living in Georgia, Texas, New York, California, the, the same preying on women enterprise girls could have occurred? Well, the reason why I think it could could have occurred is because it did occur in New York. I mean, we know now that he was doing this same thing in New York and he was probably doing the same thing in New Mexico where he had a house. And of course, he was doing it in Europe. So we do know he was doing it in other places. I do think that part of it was at the time that this happened in a lot of places and particularly in Florida, child prostitution was actually a crime where they could arrest children. Yeah. For prostitution. It's hard to believe, but it it was really a crime that was still on the books when this happened. So they treated these girls as if they were prostitutes. And I think my story, you know, I started it before the Me Too movement happened. 
And then in the middle of when I was working on it, you know, Harvey Weinstein happened and Larry Nasser happened. And I, it definitely, my story definitely benefited from the cultural awakening that happened in our country right around the top this time. And that people were finally recognizing that, you know, you can't blame the women and say that, you know, they somehow instigated it or, you know, yeah. that they should take responsibility for the fact that there was this man in Epstein's case who actually used fraud and coercion to get them to do this. It wasn't as if he said, I'm giving you $200 to have sex with me. I mean, he used fraud and coercion to get these girls by saying that he was essentially hiring them to give him massages. And that's a crime. And it should have been considered a crime back then. I mean, these prosecutors should have recognized that this was very, very wrong, especially when you came to understand how many girls he had been. I mean, he had a whole ecosystem of people who were helping him do all this. He didn't do this all by himself in a vacuum. And they should have recognized that this was something bigger than just a few underage prostitutes, yeah. you know, going to his house. Like like you yeah. say, an ecosystem. This was an organization. I mean, this was like right. a mafia family style criminal enterprise, multinational, like you talked about, to ensnare girls. And let, I mean, we say women, let girls, 13, 14, right. 15, uh, yeah. marginal girls, drug addicts, homeless, you know, the 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 weakest of the weak, uh, so to speak, or the most vulnerable, let's use that word. And yeah, the the level of cohesion, coordination and and organization takes this from from evil into, you know, something, you know, we've never seen before, really. Yeah, it's certainly in hindsight, I think people recognize that part of it. But I have to say, it's very sad to, to think that they're going to go after Maxwell, which, as you know, she's standing trial next month, and they still really aren't digging into all the other uh, people who were involved in this. And there were other people involved in it. And it seems as though, you know, they're going to be my feeling anyway, is that they're they're going to be content with prosecuting her and they're not really going to do the real courageous thing. And that is a not only uh, go after the people that other people that were involved, but also B, they haven't done anything for the, the, the prosecute with the prosecutors. They've basically washed their hands of that and cleared all these prosecutors who were involved in this. And I'm not saying that what they did was criminal, but certainly, you know, they, they could have and should have made it so that they were held, you know, that, 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 that it should have been pointed out that what they did was at the very least unethical, you know, and yeah. they take an action against their bar licenses, for example. Um, well, if nothing else, go after the one who quit the U.S. attorney's office and went to work for one of the defense attorneys for Epstein or rather for know, Epstein's buddies. Well, you know, when that happened, when it was realized that that happened, there were some complaints that were filed yeah. with the Justice Department against that lawyer. And nothing ever happened. They didn't even investigate it. Amazing. And he became a judge, a magistrate after that. Mm. I mean, how does that happen? It infuriates me when I think of all the people that are all untouched still by this. You mentioned Maxwell. That's Ghislaine Maxwell, who was Epstein's co-conspirator at the very least. Uh, They were involved. They had an intimate relationship, correct? So her prosecution is ongoing. Can you update us a little bit? Cliff notes on her and and where she is in the the, uh, justice system. 
Well, she you know, is a British socialite. His father was in the publishing business. And ironically, he disappeared in a, a similar suspicious way that, that Epstein died and that he basically, they don't know what happened to him. They think he either fell or was pushed or whatever off his yacht. And uh, he, this was many, many years ago. And I remember she, that though. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I can't off the top. I want to say 1991. Something, or something like, that. like that. Yeah. And uh, then she appears right away uh, at Epstein's side. So I believe that they met each other before her father died and they become sort of an item. Of course, she's much younger than I think she really did love Epstein. And, and basically what happened, she, after a while, she's too old for him. And yet she came to depend on him and and she was important to him because she introduced him. She moved to New York. She was like a very big socialite, went to all the A parties, knew Clintons, knew all the important people. So she introduced Epstein into this world uh, where he was with all these very wealthy and well-to-do and influential people. people. Yeah. Influential, connected people. So anyway, at, at some point, she transitions from being his girlfriend to being essentially, allegedly, his pimp, really. Um, I think it was her that dreamed up this whole, what it was, was really a, a sex pyramid scheme where yeah. she started by going to the spas in Palm Beach and around his home and finding these pretty girls and giving out her business card and telling them that she has a very wealthy benefactor who can help them, whether it's to become a massage therapist or to help them with their education or whatever. She she globbed on to exactly what these girls needed and said, I have somebody who's going to give this to you. And and that's how it all started. These girls would come thinking that, that he was going to help them in some way. And then they were sexually uh, abused. Where does she stand in the in the justice system? Oh, so she's charged with very serious charges of sex trafficking as well as perjury uh conspiracy mm. to commit perjury and she's the trial starts on right after the day after thanksgiving i want to say november 28th or 29th and she's following the jeffrey epstein defense playbook she's hired like five different lawyers not really like people that you know in the news like dershowitz was with epstein but pretty um high-powered lawyers a whole team and she, uh, you know, they're throwing everything at the prosecutors, uh, similar to the way that Epstein did in that they bog them down on motion after motion after motion. And of course, every time you do a motion, the prosecutor's got to write an objection to the motion. Hmm. And then the judge has to rule on the motion. And it just goes on and on and on. And her latest motion that just happened, they filed a motion to compel the prosecutors during trial to not mention certain words in front of the jury, such as victims. <laughs> so she can't call <laughs> these girls or young women victims, you know, Amazing. And they can't use the word rape. Uh, I mean, there's a whole list of words that have to do with the charges that, they, yeah. that, that, that she wants you know, them not to use. Yeah. So we'll see what the judge says. Welcome to the American legal system. And that, yeah. that's how it works. If you've got the money, you've got the lawyers and you right. bury people under paperwork, it may not get you off, but she's at uh, home arrest probably at worst instead of, uh, you know, sitting in a prison somewhere awaiting her trial. Right. So right. she's kind of just hanging out in a mansion someplace while all these motions and responses and everything get uh, run through the system. Has she done what, what uh, Epstein did of her actually hiring a linguist? To help out the defense attorneys, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it past her to do stuff <laughs> like that because she's 
not only does she have all the, this money behind her, she also has uh, her family. You know, she has a big family and they hired their own lawyer, David Marcus. I don't know if you know him. He's a, a Miami lawyer. He likes the media. And they hired him sort of as this PR lawyer. And they started their own tweet account and their own website. And they're out there trying to drum up uh, support for her as if that's really possible. But they are out there, you know, with, you know, all kinds of, I, I don't know any other way to say it, but really all these sort of effort, efforts to manipulate the message here that she is innocent. And, uh, you know, I don't really cover that because I don't want to give them the clicks. Uh, As you can imagine, I'm not their favorite person. (laughs) Well, that that takes me to a question I have. Uh, Did you ever, these are powerful people fighting for their lives. Did you ever feel as though your safety was in jeopardy? Well, you know, when we were doing this series, we did it very much under the radar. It wasn't until toward the end that we reached out to Epstein, he and his uh, chief lawyer, uh, Jack Goldberger, and they just rebuffed us. They didn't want anything. I even went to his house. They didn't want to talk to us. I, I, I don't think they had any idea what impact this, they were completely clueless on what impact this had. And then when toward the very end, when I sent, I sent certified letters to everybody and, you know, Dershowitz and Kenneth Starr and, you know, every address that Epstein had and every address that Dershowitz had, I heard only from Dershowitz who of course gave us a lot of, a lot of stuff, but I never heard anything from them. Maxwell's lawyer reached out. I think she more wanted to know what I was doing, but ultimately they didn't want to comment. So that makes it almost easier to do the story. So we were under the radar until of course it hit and it hit with such an explosion that, uh, I mean, we now know that Epstein um, almost immediately sent money to some of his co-conspirators to try to silence them. He knew almost immediately that he was in trouble. Then weird things started to happen. Uh, you know, right away, Emily had a, a van parked outside her house. She was forever pissed at me because the reason why they knew where who she was was because when we went to Epstein's home, as usual, I didn't have my business card, so I made her give give him one of one of hers. <laughs> so she's like, "Yeah, great, I'm going to be the one that's going to be." You know? And sure enough, there was a van outside her house, and it was a private investigator. She had to call the the police the police there, and you know, he claimed he was he wouldn't say who his client was, but he was working for a client. But he was parked outside her house for like three days. I wouldn't have known. I live in a building. But I had weird things happening. I had like a knock on my door. A guy said he was delivering pizza. I didn't order a pizza. <laughs> I just had weird things happening. And, and whether it was my own paranoia or not, it, it, it crossed my mind at that time that, of course, they're going to be investigating me. I mean, they would have to be crazy not to, to be investigating me. So I knew I was very mindful of where I was. And I called my kids, you know, they were both away at school and I just warned them, you know, just, you know, your mom's working on a kind of crazy story. And mm-hmm. of course they just rolled their eyes because they're so used to their mom's work. <laughs> they're like, hey, yeah, mom, whatever, mom. Like, over You're like, no, really, private eyes are, are hassling the victims in this case. Yeah, yeah, sure, mom. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and, then, and I was then on TV all the time and, and my kids were like, you know, and they could they couldn't like it didn't even phase them. They were like, 
yeah, whatever. You're on CNN. Who cares? <laughs> you <know? laughs> You're never cool to your kids. Never. <laughs> I, think, I think they were impressed when I was interviewed by Alec Baldwin. I think my daughter got impressed at that. You know, that's about it. When Jeffrey Epstein dies in prison under mysterious circumstances and you receive that news, what are your thoughts? Well, I was home and the the very weird thing about that whole thing was that the day before, a lot of people don't remember this, but the day before that happened, the Miami Herald had sued in federal court to unseal a whole mess of documents, incriminating documents uh, of about him and Maxwell. And it was a, a, a lawsuit that had been had been settled in 2017. And we were fighting, we, we lost on the first try and then we won on appeal. And then even after that, we had to fight for this and that. Anyway, the day before this happened, they released like 30,000 documents. And a lot of it was really detailed about things that they had done. And so I had been previous morning, I had really not even gotten dressed when I started looking at these documents and writing, 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 writing all day. And by the end of the day, I was so tired. I crawled back in bed and I didn't even ever shower or take off my pajamas. Wow. And the next morning I had an interview with NPR. And so NPR called me early and I thought that was weird. But then the first thing out of their mouth was Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide. And I'm like, no, he, I figured I said, no, I didn't really think it was true. I said, maybe it's just an attempt because he had previously allegedly attempted it. And I said, okay, well, I got to check. So I called a source of fine in the New York state, New York federal, uh, Southern district of New York prosecutor's office. And, and they confirmed it. And the first thing I did was call the victims, you know, that I knew Michelle and, and Courtney and uh, Jenna and they were crying, you know, they were just crying. And it was, it was pretty stunning. I don't know whether the documents that got released the day before, maybe he knew his uh, jig was up. I don't know what it was really. I, I really am skeptical about whether he did uh, really do this all by himself. Did they not feel a sense of closure? When, when he died, was it that, that they'd been denied that sense of closure? Yeah, they were angry. Uh, you know, they're still angry. They still feel that, uh, you know, prosecutors aren't doing enough. They still feel that they should be arresting more people. They still feel that somehow, you know, Maxwell might get off or get some kind of a le more lenient sentence. So mm -hmm. I think, and they're correct to be skeptical after everything that's happened. Yeah. Well, um, would the story have been as big without the, without Acosta being a, a Trump? Uh, Labor Department official, Labor Department secretary? Maybe. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. You're probably better positioned to, to say that than I am. I'm probably too close to it. I thought it was going to be a flop. <laughs> so I'm not a real good judge of that. I always think stuff is going to be a flop and I always think the worst. So no one was more stunned than I was when it blew up the way it did. It's funny because I had a couple of um, colleagues I respect read a little bit of it before we went to press. And I know one of them said right away, you know, Acosta is going to have to resign over this. <laughs> and I said, yeah, he's never going to have to resign. Yeah, he's going to have to resign over this. And I'm thinking, well, I don't think so. You and know? then he did. <laughs> it was a little struggle in the, in the months after it ran because it had this big reaction and then uh everything got quiet again and i just 
was working so hard to just keep it in the news. I would write another story, write another story. Every time someone asked me to be on TV to talk about it, I would go. And I was just trying to keep the story alive so that someone would investigate it. You know, I just kept thinking. And unbeknownst to me, which I now know, that the week that the story ran, three of the public corruption federal prosecutors went to Jeffrey Berman, the uh, U.S. attorney in New York, and said to him that very week, took him the story and said, we got to look into this. So they were already looking into it yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway at the time that I'm going. And then they found out, of course, that he immediately sent all this money to these co-conspirators, which didn't look too good. Yeah, yeah no kidding. Uh, but I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> Craig mentioned uh, Trump officials who were part of the prosecutorial team that swept this under the rug in South Florida, for lack of a better expression. You mentioned photographs with the Clintons. I think on the list of important facts that this story brought to light is really how money greases both sides of the political spectrum. You know, there are pictures of Jeffrey Epstein with every possible politician and all the the cocktail party circuit, the wine and dine circuit, the uh, donor circuit. This really showed that Republicans and Democrats are all the same when it comes to taking money. They'll take it from anyone as long as they've got enough. Right. And the other part of it, though, too, um, which I talk about in my book, is the part about the media, too. There, there were certainly members of the media who courted Jeffrey Epstein. You know, there was a writer for The New York Times back when he was arrested the first time. who ended up going to his private island and doing this glowing story. I mean, he's he's basically uh, under investigation and about to turn himself in for having sex with underage girls. And the New York Times does this glowing profile of him. And then it turns out that the writer that did the profile somehow coaxed Epstein to donate to a, uh, you know, an underprivileged school in Harlem that he was affiliated Mm. with. He was adept at um, manipulating a lot of different people in a lot of different areas, including the media. Yeah. He wasn't just corrupting girls. He was corrupting everything he touched pretty much. Yeah. I, I think he, 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 that was part of the, the game to him. You know, it was a, almost an artistry with him that he was able to do this. And he was very full of himself. He was very bright too. I mean, he was, let's not mm-hmm. underestimate his intelligence. He was extremely intelligent and put all that together, his, you know, sociopathic, narcissistic nature and his ability to manipulate people along with all the money that he had and all the connections he had. And then all the dirty obviously had on people. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. was a perfect storm. How do you make his money? I think, you know, nobody really knows definitively, but he, you know, from everything that I know, he was just, I call him like a super duper money launderer. I mean, he was, uh, he found ways for pe- places for people to put their money or ways for them to invest where he would take a cut of whatever they were hiding or investing. And, you know, 1% when you, when you talk the entire sure. royal family in Saudi Arabia to invest your money here or put it there, you take 1% of that, that's an awful lot of money. You know, yeah. he, he wasn't dealing with people that were, you know, that just were rich. He was dealing with people that were so rich you can't you can't even imagine how rich. Has anything happened since your book or the subsequent investigation, the legal investigation, prosecution in Florida or any of these other states that would make this less likely to occur again in the future? I was told by many judges and prosecutors that I've encountered, you know, while I've been 
you know, all over the country, really, um, with the book and with the story that I think that they're I think that they're going to rethink how they handle these kinds of cases in the, you know, they're absolutely, this isn't going to happen, I think, as blatantly as it happened. I mean, it's powerful people are always going to get deals. I mean, the, what is it? The, the family with, with Oxycontin. Um, Sack- oh, yeah, Sackler. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they just got some kind of a plea deal uh, that lets them off the hook. And it was a, part of a bankruptcy judgment. How do you get mm-hmm absolved of any criminality through a bankruptcy judgment. I mean, I'm still curious about that. So, you know, there will always be people that are going to get, you know, those, you know, better um, lawyers and have more money and influence. But I do think that when it comes to children, you know, which is what this case really at at its heart was about, I I do think that people are going to rethink the way that they handle those kinds of cases in the future. So what are you working on next? Or can we ask? I, I don't have anything on my plate right now other than... Good um, for you. <laughs> no, I'm preparing for the trial, you know. And, and I, it's the weirdest thing. I can't get press credentials for the trial. Can you believe it? Why? I can't get press credentials for the trial. <laughs> yes, I can believe that. that Twitter. Can you believe that? <laughs> I mean, I, she wouldn't even be on trial if it wasn't for me. But I can't get press credentials because... In New York federal court, the only way you can get press credentials is if you cover the court on a regular basis. And it can't be one case. So oh they filled out the application. It says you have to give 12 clips. And I did. And the guy sends me a thing back and he goes, well, you didn't submit everything. I said, yeah, I submitted like 40 clips about the Epstein clips. And he said, that doesn't matter. You have to have clips on at least 12 different cases. That's a silly rule. <laughs> That's a, just a ridiculous rule. I've never heard of anything like that before. And then they say that I probably won't even get into the courtroom. I'll have to be in the upper room. <laughs> oh, my gosh. One last serious one for me, and we appreciate your time. What are the red flags, the warning signs to for our audience to look for when they see, man, I, this just doesn't smell right. It doesn't feel right. This is weird. Sex trafficking, underage girls being you know, used for sex. What are some warning signs people can look for and, and then hopefully uh, alert the authorities if they find these? You know, I think in Florida, this is such a, it's a very good question because when I'm out and about, I cannot even tell you how many times I see these young girls with these old Older men, yeah. older men. I see it all the time. So how do you say, oh, well, that girl's in trouble. It might be sex trafficking. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. hard to know. I don't know the answer to that. I think that you just got to pay attention to your gut. And, you know, I'm pretty good at body language. Not everybody is. But I think if you think something, it doesn't feel right or, or, or something seems wrong, I think you should, you know, I think you should report it. I do think that authorities are more trained than they used to be on being able to handle these kinds of cases and to go talk to the girl or her parents or things like that. I think they're going to be uh, less likely to d- dismiss you for reporting it. Yeah. I think yeah. they'll at least look at it. Whereas I think years ago, they might just say, Oh, whatever. She's with an older guy. Sure. Yeah. And and then blame the victim and just the, the default option being to not believe her. Uh, is, I'm sure that some of these young girls are there willing, willingly, mm. 
but it, you know they don't know what they're doing sometimes yeah. you know, well they're, they're under the age of consent of legal sure. consent so yeah, yeah. well and, and but sometimes they're they're 16 and they look like they're 20 uh, i was just gonna say 16 can look 19 these girls can be coming from overseas i mean you don't know and it's it, for men with power and influence who are always used to getting their way uh, like you say, whether it's a, a game or, or something much more devious than that, they hide in plain sight and they are not, there's no shame, there's no morality uh, for them to, to flaunt this. It's part of the game, yeah. part of the, the, the inside joke. Yeah, well, that commentary on our culture, it, it, that still seems to be somehow acceptable for these guys that are, you know, 60, 70 to be with a girl who looks like she's 20, you know, it, it, it's somehow, I think to a lot of people that it's somehow still okay. And I, I just, when I see that, I, my stomach just turns because I think, oh my God, I don't know how men think that's okay. I just don't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Julie Brown, the, uh, uh, for your reporting on the Maxwell case, Miami Herald. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Right. Right. (laughs) We will follow uh, along there. Thank you for your uh, reporting and and tireless pursuit of this story. The book is Perversion of Justice, the Jeffrey Epstein story. Julie Brown has been our guest. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been great. It's a hero right there, Craig. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I like about the book is she doesn't just tell you about the Epstein case. She tells you about her struggles and all the things she deals with in trying to report on it you know, conflicts with her editors and, uh, you know, just the, the day-to-day trying to make it, uh, you know, on the, the salary you get paid, yeah, all yeah. the things like that. I mean, it, it's a it's a great book for young journalists to read, but also I gave it to my son who's in law school and is interested in becoming a, a mm. prosecutor, defense attorney. And I said, everybody in the American legal establishment should read this book. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You are a journalist. I never allow people to attach that phrase to me because I know what it means. Journalism's real. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm a talk show host, commentator, opinioner, you know, writer. Journalism is what Julie does. And it's oh, yeah. spending countless hours with little uh, monetary reward trying to find life-changing, important stories like this. And uh, you and I, because we, we know so many journalists and, and you've been in the field your entire life, we can you know, wax poetic about the power of journalism. Mm-hmm. That's the power of journalism. Absolutely. Okay. When there are no local newspapers in Miami, here, it's a big paper. Okay. Mm-hmm. But these kind of stories get broken by small papers as well. And without oh, sure. them... Without Julie, mm-hmm. how many more victims? Exactly. exactly. Jeffrey Epstein's living the life of Riley, Palm Beach, mm-hmm. driving yeah. rolls, yeah. finding girls, raping them. That mm-hmm. is journalism. That's why your local newspaper matters. That's why, you know, if you're on the fence about your subscription, oh, go ahead and do it. Renew that subscription. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah, that it's, is... It's not just good for for journalism. It's good for your community and for democracy as a whole. Well, and we talk about democracy. How about justice? How about law and order? How about victims' rights? Again, none of the... Epstein was brought to trial once and had some misdemeanor charges stick and did a few months in in a a country club jail. He got away with it. And then Julie Brown came along and he didn't get away with it. It wasn't the cops. It wasn't the prosecutors. It wasn't judges who brought some measure of 
accountability to Jeffrey Epstein. It was yeah. a journalist. Well, definitely not the prosecutors. <laughs> no. no. Welcome to Florida. Welcome to Florida.